Did President Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal economic policies pull the country out of the Great Depression? My research clearly suggests that the answer, contrary to popular belief, is no. In fact, the New Deal made matters worse. Let me explain. The centerpiece of Roosevelt's New Deal plan to fix the economy was the National Industrial Recovery Act, or NIRA, which the president announced with great fanfare in June of 1933. FDR believed that he could use the government to artificially raise both prices and wages. It would work like this. Higher prices would raise profits. That makes business happy. And higher wages would raise income. That makes workers happy. More profits for business mean more money to hire new workers. Higher wages for workers means more money to buy consumer goods. A virtuous cycle is set in motion, and the economy improves rapidly. But here's what FDR missed. Artificially raising wages also raises labor costs. And when labor costs go up, business hires fewer workers or no workers at all, especially in a difficult economic environment. Meanwhile, artificially raising prices reduces demand for the obvious reason that people buy less of something when its price goes higher. So why did FDR do this? FDR based his New Deal policy largely on what happened during World War I, which had ended only 15 years earlier in 1918. During that war, the government established planning boards to set wages and prices, and economic activity increased. If it worked during wartime, FDR reasoned, it should work during peacetime. But Roosevelt confused the increase in economic activity that was actually the result of inflated war demands as being due to government planning. The government, Roosevelt concluded, could much better manage the economy in a time of crisis than private enterprise, which in his worldview only considered its own selfish interests. Therefore, government guidance, not free enterprise, was the citizen's steadfast ally. Contrary to what you might think, big business, including autos and steel, were happy to go along with FDR's plan, at least at first. If the government was going to ensure their profits, who were they to complain? So instead of prohibiting monopolies, something the government is actually supposed to do, the NIRA created monopolies on the condition that these favored industries immediately raised wages significantly and bargained collectively with labor. Not surprisingly, the Supreme Court declared the NIRA unconstitutional in May 1935, stating that FDR violated constitutional separation of powers. He had meddled in an area, private business, where he had no constitutional right. But the decision had little practical effect because the government simply ignored it. Meanwhile, the wage side of the equation rose faster than expected because of the passage of another New Deal law, the 1935 Wagner Act. The Wagner Act provided unions with new collective bargaining rights. And as the labor unions grew in size and power, so did workers' wages. The result was that between 1933 and 1939, these government policies, the NIRA and the Wagner Act, increased prices and wages by about 20%. These artificial price and wage increases impeded what should have been a strong recovery from the Depression. They prevented the natural forces of competition from pushing prices down and pushing worker productivity up. Instead, artificially high wages led industry to hire fewer workers and high prices reduced demand for products. If these policies had not been adopted, my research, as well as research by other economists, 
indicates the economy would have returned to its normal level of employment and output by 1936. In other words, the policies that were supposed to restore prosperity actually prolonged the depression. After several years of slow recovery, even FDR acknowledged that his policies had failed. And in 1938, the Department of Justice began pursuing antitrust, that is, anti-monopoly lawsuits. It took a while for these lawsuits to take effect, but by the time World War II began, the economy was improving. Labor policies also changed for the better during the war. FDR met with unions and asked them not to strike, and unions agreed, provided that they could continue to bargain collectively. When in 1942, FDR's National War Labor Board refused to approve a large wage increase between Bethlehem Steel and its workers, unions complained to FDR, but FDR took no action. He had finally come to repudiate both his price increase and wage increase policies. By the end of the war, wages and productivity were back in alignment and the economy rebounded, but only after many New Deal policies were abandoned. I'm Lee Ohanian, professor of economics at UCLA for Prager University. I'm going to talk to you about the most important thing you will ever have. Now try to guess what that might be. For example, is it money? Well, it's certainly better to have money than not to, but it's definitely not the most important thing you can have. Just ask all the rich people who are very unhappy. Or even better, read about what's happened to most of the people who win tens of millions of dollars in a lottery. Most of these people actually became less happy, not more. So all right then, what about love? Is that the most important thing you can ever have? Well, love sure is important. I can't imagine living without it. I treasure the love of my friends and the love of my family. But if you don't have the thing I'm about to tell you, you won't receive much love at all. So let's try a third answer. Happiness. Well, that too is very, very important. Who wants to be unhappy? But again, without the thing I will tell you about, there would be little happiness in the world. So here goes. The most important thing you will ever have is, drum roll please, good values. Yes, good values. Now I know that may sound boring, and I realize that it's possible that you may have never really thought about values or even know what I'm talking about. So let me explain. A value is something you think is more important than anything else. More important than money, more important even than love, and even more important than happiness. And above all, values are what you consider to be more important than your feelings. This is very hard for a lot of people to believe because we live in a time when people think that how they feel about something is more important than anything else. But that isn't so. Here's a simple example of the conflict between a feeling and a value. Just about everyone feels like eating junk food. Uh, but there's a big problem here. If you eat whatever you feel like eating, you will end up obese and unhealthy. So then, what is it that stops people from eating all the food they feel like eating? The answer is a value. That's right, a value. And what is that value? Not getting obese and staying healthy. 
There is, in other words, a necessary battle that goes on inside of most people. The battle between what they feel, in this case the desire to eat junk food, and a value that they hold, in this case staying healthy and looking good. Now as important as a healthy body is, this conflict between what we feel like doing and values is even more important when it comes to doing what is right, when it comes to how we treat other people, not just ourselves. Here's one that will make you think. Imagine you're walking on a beach with the dog you love, when all of a sudden you look out at the water and you see your dog drowning. And imagine, too, that at the same time, about 100 feet from your dog, a person you don't know, a stranger, is also drowning. Now, which would you try to save first? Uh, Just about anyone who loves their pet would feel like saving their pet first. But what if you value human life even more than an animal's life? And you probably do. After all, you probably eat animals, but you wouldn't eat a human being. Then your value, the unique preciousness of human life, is in conflict with your feelings for your dog. Here's another example. Imagine you are about to take an important test at school. If you cheat on that test, you'll be able to avoid failing and maybe even get into some great school. But what if you have a value, what we call a moral value, that cheating is wrong? You sure feel like cheating, but if you have moral values, you know it's wrong too. Again, that battle between your feelings and a value. Almost everything that is wrong with the world comes from people either not having higher moral values or not living by them because they feel they want to do something else. People who murder feel like murdering, and they do what they feel, rather than live by the value of preserving human life. People who steal feel that they want the thing that they steal, so they take what they feel like having, rather than live by the value of not stealing. The list is pretty much endless, and that's why good values are the most important thing any of us can ever have. Without them, the world would be a very terrible place. And finally, know this. The best people you know, meaning the nicest, kindest, and most honest, are people who battle their feelings every day of their lives. So should you. I'm Dennis Prager. Do more. That's what Americans demand of their president these days. A real president, Democrat or Republican, knows how to use the office. A real president makes things happen, or so the conventional wisdom. But actually, there's another model. A president can succeed through inaction by doing as little as possible. One such president was Calvin Coolidge. From the time he took office in 1923 to the time he left in 1929, Coolidge served a philosophy that was simple and powerful. Don't do. Coolidge was our great refrainer. The leadership style matched the personal style. Coolidge did not waste words, hence his nickname, Silent Cal. He did not grandstand. For these quiet ways, the 30th president absorbed much abuse. A Washington socialite, Alice Longworth, said that Coolidge looked like he had been weaned on a pickle. Coolidge cut a sharp contrast to Alice's father, Theodore Roosevelt, who had served a decade and a half earlier. 
And what a contrast Coolidge provided with another Roosevelt, Franklin, who came just a few years later. The refrainer is worth getting to know because he got the kind of results men of action long for today, especially economic results. Low unemployment, often well below 5%, low taxes, higher wages, fewer strikes, new technology for the masses, a new car or phone or radio, and most remarkable of all, a shrinking federal budget. If you remember just one fact about Coolidge's presidency, let it be this. Coolidge left the federal budget lower than he had found it. How did Coolidge do it? First, he resisted taking unnecessary action himself. Second, he imposed the same discipline on Congress. That wasn't easy. In the early 20s, the progressive movement, whose impulse was then as now to do something, was on the march. Progressive plans included more aid for agriculture, encouraging unions, increasing taxes, and nationalizing important industries, such as railroads and utilities. Coolidge blocked the progressives and thereby blocked their expansion of government. He vetoed farm subsidies twice, even though he personally came from an area of poor farmers, rural Vermont. Coolidge was sympathetic to the farmers, but helping them wasn't the government's function. Coolidge also vetoed aggressive versions of the Great Entitlement Proposal of his day, an entitlement that would have expanded the budget by billions, sharply higher pensions for veterans. And he blocked the rise of militant labor unions wherever and whenever he could. This habit he had begun while still governor of Massachusetts. Coolidge made especially good use of the pocket veto, the ability of the president to veto a bill by simply not returning it to Congress. Coolidge used the pocket veto 30 times, an historically high rate. It is much more important to kill bad bills, he said, than to pass good ones. The legislation Coolidge did endorse was designed to meet the same minimalist end, restrain the government. Together with his Treasury Secretary, Andrew Mellon, Coolidge pushed through lower taxes. Journalists joked that the two were so laconic that they conversed in pauses. But these witticisms obscure their significant achievement. Coolidge and Mellon lowered the top tax rate to 25%. Their goal was to shrink the public sector so that the private sector might expand. And the policy worked. The final example of the great refrainer's philosophy involves political sacrifice. The progressives won 17% of the vote in 1924, almost as much as Ross Perot in 1992. But Coolidge won the presidential election with more votes than the Democrats and progressives combined. So everyone, including the Republican Party, thought Coolidge would surely run a second time in 1928. Yet he declined. Typical of Coolidge, he thought he had done enough. Yes, it's possible to criticize Coolidge. As much as he tried to avoid it, Coolidge in the end signed bills that he would have preferred not to. And the president showed a misguided penchant for protectionism, never a sound economic policy. Some suggest that Coolidge was responsible for the stock market crash and the decade-long depression that followed after he left office. But my own research for my Coolidge biography, Coolidge, suggests that claim is inaccurate. Indeed, researching another book, The Forgotten Man, I found evidence that too much action by Presidents Hoover and Roosevelt put the great in the Great Depression. It seems ironic that a man of such personal modesty presided over the era known as the Roaring Twenties. 
But that was the paradox. Coolidge was a Scrooge who begat plenty. Perhaps the day has come for a new politician to follow the great refrainer's guiding rule. Where others do, don't. And if you have to do, do less. I'm Amity Schles of the George W. Bush Presidential Center for Prager University. There are 193 countries in the United Nations today. Of these, one has been singled out as an especially egregious offender of the organization's mandate to preserve and enhance human freedom and tolerance. Can you guess which it is? It has about 7 million citizens, of whom a fifth are Arab. The government is vibrantly democratic, its press wide open, and religious freedom fully respected. Women have equal rights and gays live openly. The answer is Israel. Here are some facts. 38% of all the resolutions of the United Nations Human Rights Council, the UN's top human rights body, that are critical of specific countries have been directed at Israel alone. The Council has a permanent agenda that governs every regular session. This agenda is composed of 10 items, one of which is always reserved for criticizing Israel. Between 2006, when the Council was created, and 2012, it published 48 reports condemning Israel. During that same period, there were nine reports on Syria's mass killings and torture of its own citizens, three on Iran's genocide-threatening regime, and not one on, for example, China, which denies more than a billion people elementary freedoms. I could go on, but I think you get the idea. So we are faced with a choice. Either there's something very wrong with Israel that I'm not telling you about, or there's something very wrong with the United Nations that you should know about. Let's look into the history of both. First, Israel. Ever since its establishment, voted for by the United Nations, by the way, in 1948, Israel has had to fight its neighbors solely in order to survive. It has endured innumerable acts of terrorism, the most intense from 2000 to 2005, the so-called Second Intifada, in which children and other innocents were blown up in places like pizza parlors and buses and at weddings. It still suffers from rocket attacks against civilians from the Gaza Strip, which is controlled by a terror group, Hamas, whose stated reason for existence is to destroy Israel. Israel has developed a strong military and a web of security fences and walls to protect itself. Do these security measures cause hardships to people who must deal with this network? Yes, they do. Israel would like nothing better than to tear all these fences and walls down. But bitter experience informs it as to what would happen if it did. Is Israel a perfect country? Of course not. But it is one of the freest and most open societies in the world. That's Israel's history. Here's the UN's. In 1949, when the UN admitted Israel as a member state, 
the UN had 58 member countries and a clear democratic and pro-Western orientation. Today, the UN has 193 member countries, most of which are not even free. Among its many negative changes, the UN changed the principle of self-determination from a post-World War II, post-Holocaust human rights principle to a tool to wield against the West, especially against Israel. The Palestinians became the very paradigm of the oppressed, and Israel became the great oppressor. This reached its fullest expression at the notorious Durban Conference, held in South Africa in 2001. The Durban Conference was billed as a UN World Conference against racism and intolerance, but it turned into an orgy of anti-Israel and anti-Jew propaganda. Of all the bad actors in the world, the final Durban Declaration found one state guilty of racial discrimination. You guessed it, Israel. The Durban Declaration, however, remains to this day the centerpiece of the UN's allegedly anti-racism agenda. There's only one country in the world whose very legitimacy is questioned. Only one country that is openly threatened with annihilation. That country is Israel. And what has the United Nations done about it? Worse than nothing. It has itself become a global platform for anti-Semitism and the destruction of the Jewish state. I'm Ann Bayefsky, director of the Turo Human Rights Institute for Prager University. Shortly after taking office, President Barack Obama's Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan, acknowledged that America's public school system is broken. It's obvious the system's broken, he said. Let's admit it's broken, let's admit it's dysfunctional, and let's do something dramatically different. And let's do it now. Let's fix the thing. So why are America's public schools failing? Why, after more than a quarter century of perpetual reform, has the nation been unable to bring real change to public education? Well, a complete answer, of course, would be very complicated. But at the heart of it lies the power of the teachers' unions, the National Education Association, the American Federation of Teachers, and their state and local affiliates. I don't say this out of some sort of anti-union ideology. I say it as an objective description of reality, backed by an enormous amount of evidence. Union power has created insurmountable problems for effective schools. So why has this happened? Partly, it's because the teachers' unions are by far the most powerful groups in American education. More than that, they're special interest groups, which means that they use their power to promote the special interests, the job interests, of their members. They're just not in the business of representing the interests of children, and no one should expect them to do that. The purpose of a union is to represent the job interests of its members, and these interests are simply not the same as the interests of children. So how, then, do they pursue these job interests? Well, they do it in two ways. The first is through collective bargaining, which takes place in local school districts. Through collective bargaining, the unions are able to win countless restrictive work rules written into binding contracts that specify how the schools must be organized. Typically, for example, these contracts include salary rules requiring that teachers be paid entirely on the basis of seniority and credentials, 
without any regard for whether their students are actually learning anything. Often, these contracts also include seniority rules that allow senior teachers to take desirable jobs that come open, even if these teachers are mediocre in the classroom or a bad fit for the school. There are also seniority rules requiring that, in layoff situations, excellent young teachers must be let go automatically, and their senior colleagues must be kept on no matter how incompetent they may be. Labor contracts are just filled with these kinds of perverse rules. No one who's thinking only of what is best for kids would ever organize the schools in this way. Yet this is how America's schools are actually organized, because of union power. The other way teachers' unions shape the public schools is through the political process, where they simply have far more clout than other education groups by many orders of magnitude. They have over four million members. They're top contributors to political campaigns. They have armies of activists in the electoral trenches. They have lobbying organizations in all 50 states and much more. They've used this political clout to block or substantially weaken major reforms. For decades, for example, reformers have tried to bring accountability to American education, but the unions have stood in the way. They've opposed using test scores to measure teacher performance. They've opposed performance-based pay. They've even opposed moving bad teachers out of the classroom. As a result, there are rarely any consequences for low performance. No one's pay suffers. No one loses a job. We have accountability systems in which no one is actually held accountable when kids don't learn. The unions have also fiercely opposed the second major reform movement of our time, the movement for school choice, which seeks to give families new options, to empower them to leave bad schools, and to give the regular public schools stronger incentives to improve. Here, too, the unions fight for their members, not for students and their families. In this case, because school choice allows children, and thus money and jobs, to leave the schools where union members teach. Indeed, the unions are so opposed to choice that they fight to defeat it even for the poorest kids trapped in the nation's worst schools. As a result, after decades of reform efforts, only 4% of public school kids are in charter schools, and less than 1% receive government-funded scholarships for private schools. You can learn much more about all this in my book, Special Interest, Teachers' Unions in America's Public Schools. But here's what it comes down to. The teachers' unions have used their power from the bottom up through collective bargaining to burden the schools with organizations that are literally not designed to be effective. And they've used their power from the top down through politics to stand in the way of accountability, choice, and other major reform efforts. As Arnie Duncan well expressed, the nation is fully aware that it has a problem with its public schools. But the main reason that problem persists is that there's another problem, a more fundamental one, that prevents real change and improvement, the problem of human power. Until the nation is able to recognize that problem and do something about it, America's public schools will never be organized to provide kids with the most effective education possible. I'm Terry Moe, professor of political science at Stanford University for Prager University. I'd like to talk about emotional growth, a.k.a. change. The greatest part about being a human being that we completely ignore. If you think about it, every other species on the planet is unable to change. Polar bears, they can't change. Actually, you can ask. Now, you know what? Don't bother. (laughs) They'll eat you. I mean, really, nothing else on the planet can change but us. 
We can change. It's the greatest thing about being a human being, yet we squander it every single day. How many people do you know that are exactly the same as they were in high school? And by the way, that's always bad. Even if you're good in high school, not changing is bad. But most of the people I know started off bad. And whatever habits they had, good or bad, or idiosyncratic behavior, they're taking it straight to the grave. The only way you can change, and believe you me, everybody around you wants you to change in some way, shape, or form. That's the sad part. Yes, we would all love you to change. And the only way you can change is through internalizing. The way you internalize is just about everything that happens in your life, you make yourself responsible And it's easy to do, it's painful to do, it's rarely done, but here's how you do it. Let's just say I wanted some fro-yo. And by the way, how lazy are we that we can't even say zen and gert? Let's just say I wanted some frozen yogurt. And I got in my car and I went up the street and I went to the frozen yogurt place and it was closed. Now I could pound on the glass and throw my hands up to the heavens and scream, why? It's noon, it's Tuesday, it's the middle of the summer. You guys should be open. This is an outrage. Or I can think, you know what? I should have called first. Because the only way I can get anything out of this experience is by turning it to myself and on myself and internalizing. And I'm not saying I'm a bad man or should be incarcerated for not calling them first. But if I can get into the habit of making almost everything my, not fault, but responsibility, then I can use what was a wasted trip across town into a learning experience. Whether it's uh, riding a motorcycle with no helmet or going to the Froyo place and finding it's not open, you are the first person that makes that decision. And if you're going to blame your teachers, meaning I got an F because they don't like me, or you're going to blame your girlfriend or boyfriend, they don't listen, they don't understand. Every guy I meet is in love with himself and never listens. Well, what? Every guy you meet, what's the one constant in this equation? Well, that would be you. So please find a mirror and start looking into it. Change as a human being should not be something we shun. It should be something we embrace. And it is humbling, and it doesn't feel good, but it's the greatest gift we have as human beings. Again, salamanders and koala bears. Although, what would you change about a koala bear? (laughs) They're so squeezable, those guys. They don't have a choice. We can go from unemployable, horrible, uneducated to God's gift to humanity with just a little something called change and first internalizing. I'm Adam Carolla for Prager University. I'm going to argue for the existence of God from the premise that moral good and evil really exist. They are not simply a matter of personal taste, not merely substitutes for I like and I don't like. Before I begin, let's get one misunderstanding out of the way. 
My argument does not mean that atheists can't be moral. Of course, atheists can behave morally, just as theists can behave immorally. Let's start then with a question about good and evil. Where do good and evil come from? Atheists typically propose a few possibilities. Among these are evolution, reason, conscience, human nature, and utilitarianism. I will show you that none of these can be the ultimate source of morality. Why not from evolution? Because any supposed morality that is evolving can change. If it can change for the good or the bad, there must be a standard above these changes to judge them as good or bad. For most of human history, more powerful societies enslaved weaker societies and prospered. That's just the way it was, and no one questioned it. Now we condemn slavery. But based on a merely evolutionary model, that is, an ever-changing view of morality, who is to say that it won't be acceptable again one day? Slavery was once accepted, but it was not, therefore, acceptable. And if you can't make that distinction between accepted and acceptable, you can't criticize slavery. And if you can make that distinction, you are admitting to objective morality. Now what about reasoning? While reasoning is a powerful tool to help us discover and understand morality, it cannot be the source of morality. For example, criminals use reasoning to plan a murder without their reason telling them that murder is wrong. And was it reasoning or something higher than reasoning that led those Gentiles who risked their life to save Jews during the Holocaust? The answer is obvious. It was something higher than reasoning. Because risking one's life to save a stranger was a very unreasonable thing to do. Nor can conscience alone be the source of morality. Every person has his own conscience, and some people apparently have none. Heinrich Himmler chief of the brutal Nazi SS, successfully appealed to his henchmen's consciences to help them do the right thing in murdering and torturing millions of Jews and others. How can you say your conscience is right and Himmler's is wrong if conscience alone is the source of morality? The answer is you can't. Some people say human nature is the ultimate source of morality. But human nature can lead us to do all sorts of reprehensible things. In fact, human nature is the reason we need morality. Our human nature leads some of us to do real evil and leads all of us to be selfish, unkind, petty, and egocentric. I doubt you would want to live in a world where human nature was given free reign. Utilitarianism is the claim that what is morally right is determined by whatever creates the greatest happiness for the greatest number. But to return to our slavery example, if 90% of the people would get great benefit from enslaving the other 10%, would that make slavery right? According to utilitarianism, it would. We've seen where morality can't come from. Now let's see where it does come from. What are moral laws? Unlike the laws of physics or the laws of mathematics, which tell us what is, the laws of morality tell us what ought to be. But like physical laws, they direct and order something. And that something is right human behavior. But since morality doesn't exist physically, 
there are no moral or immoral atoms or cells or genes, its cause has to be something that exists apart from the physical world. That thing must therefore be above nature or supernatural. The very existence of morality proves the existence of something beyond nature and beyond man. Just as a design suggests a designer, moral commands suggest a moral commander. Moral laws must come from a moral lawgiver. Well, that sounds pretty much like what we know as God. So the consequence of this argument is that whenever you appeal to morality, you are appealing to God, whether you know it or not. You're talking about something religious, even if you think you're an atheist. I'm Peter Kreeft, professor of philosophy at Boston College for Prager University. The London newspaper, The Daily Mail, listed the top ten problems experienced by couples on vacation together. Topping the list was the man looking at other women in bikinis on the beach. Now, in another Prager University course, I explained the sexual power of the visual on men. And as I show, and as anyone readily understands, unless they've been misled by a politically correct college course, the power of the visual to excite men has no analog in women. Women don't get excited by virtually every male body at the beach. Male legs don't turn them on like female legs turn men on, etc., etc. It takes massive willpower, in fact, for a heterosexual man not to look at bikini-clad women. And few men, even the nicest, finest, and most monogamously faithful and loving, have such willpower. So the Daily Mail notes, this frequently causes problems when a couple's itinerary includes a visit to the beach. And what exactly is the problem? The problem is that the wife or girlfriend feels threatened by his looking. And why does she feel threatened? Because she thinks he is comparing her to those women. And why does this disturb her? Here are three reasons. First, virtually every woman, no matter how attractive she is, thinks that when her man is looking at other women, other women in general, and in bikinis especially, he is finding them more attractive than her. Second, she thinks that he is therefore dissatisfied with her, which in turn arouses the unspoken but primal fear that he might leave her. And third, she is sure that her man will continue to think about these women long after they've disappeared from sight. So now let's analyze these reasons. First, does the husband or boyfriend find these women on the beach, or for that matter anywhere else, more attractive than he finds his wife or girlfriend? Well, since I believe that only honesty works in the long run, the answer is sometimes yes. He may very well find some of those women more physically attractive than his woman. But here's the point that most women, again, understandably don't know. With very few exceptions, it doesn't matter. You heard me right. Of course, when looking at these other women, he may find some of them more physically attractive than the woman he's with. But, and here's the good news, so what? Presuming he is attracted to you, and if he isn't, it doesn't matter if you're vacationing in a monastery and all he sees are monks. He wants you. I repeat, he wants you. And if he does, all those other women don't amount to a hill of beans. There's another thing women need to know. Within seconds of her disappearing from view, he has no memory of any of these women. When in sight, they can take over his male mind. But out of sight, they are out of mind. It's as if they never existed. 
Yes, the visual gets men's total attention in a matter of seconds. But as soon as the woman he was focused on vanishes, most men forget what they saw in an equal number of seconds. Why does this come as news and hard-to-believe news at that to most women? Because you, the woman, remember the women your man looked at. And you therefore think that he too remembers them. But let me assure you, he doesn't. Most men under torture couldn't identify the women they looked at the hour before, let alone the day before, if they were shown photos of them along with photos of women they had never seen. And more good news. His seeing women who he thinks for that moment are more attractive than you has no bearing whatsoever on his being quote-unquote dissatisfied with you. Men find other women attractive in large measure just because they are other women. Men are programmed by nature to want variety. Indeed, endless variety. That's why God-fearing King Solomon had 700 wives and another 300 concubines, and secular Hugh Hefner had at least that many lovers. In some then, when your man looks at these other, perhaps even more attractive women, he is A, not comparing you to them, B, not in any way becoming dissatisfied with you, and C, certainly not thinking of them later. He looks at them because they are other women, whether they are more attractive, just as attractive, or less attractive. They are women in bikinis, so he looks. Wow. The point of all this is that where there is basic domestic harmony and mutual physical attraction, more than anything, your husband wants you. When he looks, he isn't comparing, he isn't getting dissatisfied, and he won't have a clue later as to who he saw. When you're back in the hotel room, put on your own bikini and tell him you want him. Because again, more than anyone else in the world, he wants you. If you don't believe me, ask him. You'll be glad you did, and so will he. I'm Dennis Prager. I'm talking with Professor Walter Williams, Professor of Economics at George Mason University. Professor Williams, what is moral about the free market? Well, I, I, I believe that the free market is morally superior to other ways of organizing human behavior. And the reason why is that the free market implies voluntary actions on behalf of human beings. Now, for example, when I mow your lawn, you give me $20. What's that $20 really mean? Well, it means that when I go down to the, the uh, supermarket and I tell the supermarket guy, look, I would like to have 10 pounds of steak that my fellow man produced and a six-pack of beer that my fellow man produced. And so he, said, he in effect says to me, well, you want your fellow man to serve you. What did you do to serve him? Well, I say, I mowed his lawn. Well, he says, prove it. Then I offer this $20. You can kind of think of this $20 as certificates of performance. It's proof that I've served my fellow man. Now, contrast the morality of having to serve your fellow man in order to have a claim on what your fellow man produces with government allocation. Now, the government can come tell me, look, William, you don't have to get out in the hot sun to mow your fellow man's lawn. We will take what he produces and give it to you. So is the free market a zero-sum game? That is, if someone wins, does someone else lose? We can kind of look at the zero-sum game as, as poker. 
That is, if I win, of necessity, somebody else has to lose. That's the way poker is. That's why we call this zero-sum game. And, and what describes zero-sum games in our economy is government. That is, if, if, if you use government to get a food stamp or to get a bailout, well, you benefit, but at my expense, at somebody else's expense. That's what we mean by a zero-sum game. But when we peaceably trade with one another, that's a positive-sum game because you are better off and I am better off. Otherwise, we would not have exchanged. I think that it's far more, a, far more moral to require that a person serve his fellow man in order to have a claim on what his fellow man produces, rather than not serve him and still have a claim. How does the free market deal with failing companies? In the free market capitalism, uh, it, it punishes people who don't uh, please their fellow man and use their resources efficiently. You know, for example, you take the, the, take the, uh, the automobile company, uh, that they were making huge losses. Why were they making huge losses? Well, because they were producing cars that did not please a sufficient number of their fellow men. So they would have gone bankrupt. That's what the market would have done. They would have said, "Look, you're out. We're gonna, we're gonna, uh, we're going to sell your plant and equipment to somebody who can do a better job in managing." But look. What they're able, to, what what Chrysler and GM was able to do, they were able to go to Washington D.C. and get the government to bail them out, and and the government bailout essentially mean meant to them, well, you're not going to be as accountable to the consumers and stockholders. Just be accountable to us in Washington D.C. What's the role of government in a free market economy? In order to have a free market system, you have to have limited government. And this is what the framers of our country envisioned for our nation. That is a limited government with certain enumerated powers that are listed in Article 1, Section 8 of the United States Constitution. And the very reason that we had a limited government, that our founders set forth a limited government in 1787 with the United States Constitution, is the very reason we became the richest country on the face of earth. That is because we kept government from interfering with the natural ambitions of, of mankind. And as a result, we produced the uh, wealthiest nation on the face of earth. And, and it's not coincidental. That is, if you look around the world, you see that people are better off in those countries that are closest to the market mechanism, and you see people who are worse off in those countries the furthest away in socialism and communist countries. There are almost no issues where I don't understand both sides. The size of government, taxation, abortion, same-sex marriage, various wars. As strongly as I may feel about one of the sides, I understand the opposition. But when it comes to the death penalty for murder, the gulf is unbridgeable between those of us who believe that some murderers, and I emphasize some murderers, should be executed and those who believe that no murderer 
and I emphasize, no murderer should ever be put to death. Take this example. On the afternoon of July 23, 2007, in the town of Cheshire, Connecticut, two human monsters named Stephen Hayes and Joshua Komisarzewski entered the home of a physician, Dr. William Pettit. They bludgeoned Dr. Pettit with a baseball bat, nearly killing him. Then Hayes raped the doctor's wife, Jennifer Hawk Pettit, and Komisarzewski sexually assaulted their 11-year-old daughter, Michaela, an assault he photographed with his cell phone. Dr. Pettit managed to escape, but the two men strangled Mrs. Pettit to death, tied down the girls on beds, doused them with gasoline, and while the girls were still alive, the murderers set fire to the house. Those opposed to capital punishment believe that those two men have a right to keep their lives until their natural deaths. Is there nothing a person can do to deserve to be put to death? To those opposed to capital punishment, the answer is no. In fact, many opponents of capital punishment equate executing murderers such as Hazen Komisarzewski with the murders they committed. Opponents of capital punishment argue that keeping all murderers alive sanctifies the value of human life. But the opposite is the case. Keeping every murderer alive only cheapens human life because it belittles murder. That's easily proven. Imagine that the punishment for murder were the same as the punishment for speeding. Would that belittle murder and thereby cheapen human life? Of course it would. Society teaches how bad an action is by the punishment it meets out. And what about the pain inflicted on the loved ones of those murdered? For the overwhelming majority of people, their suffering is immeasurably increased knowing that the person who murdered their son, daughter, husband, wife, parent, close friend, and who often inflicted unspeakable suffering and unimaginable terror on that person, is alive and being cared for. The death of their loved one's murderer doesn't bring their loved one back, but it sure does provide some sense of justice. That's why Dr. Pettit, a physician whose life is devoted to saving lives, wants the murderers of his wife and daughters put to death. In his words, death, quote, is really the only true just punishment for certain heinous and depraved murders. Is the doctor wrong? In addition to arguing that all murderers must be allowed to keep their lives, opponents of capital punishment maintain that the death penalty doesn't deter murders. This is truly absurd. Everyone acknowledges that punishment deters every other crime. Why is murder the one exception? Well, it isn't. Punishment deters every crime, and the death penalty is the ultimate deterrent. If applied fairly and often, would it deter all murders? Of course not. But every murder it did deter is an infinitely precious human life saved. And finally, what about opponents' argument that an innocent person may be executed? One problem with this argument is that opponents of capital punishment oppose the death penalty for all murderers, including when there is absolute proof and certitude of the murderer's guilt. So come on, let's be honest. The argument that an innocent may be killed is primarily used as an emotional appeal to convince people to oppose capital punishment. Moreover, by keeping every murderer alive, more people, undoubtedly many more people, are murdered 
than the infinitesimally small number of people wrongly executed. Anyway, now, with DNA testing, it is virtually impossible to execute an innocent person. And that remote possibility hardly negates all the good that executing some murderers achieves. So, if you're on the proverbial fence on this issue, ask yourself this question. Do you really believe that the torturers, rapists, murderers of Dr. William Pettit's wife and daughters and diabolical men like them should be allowed to keep the very thing they deliberately took from others, their lives? Well, if you're like most people, your answer is no. Your heart, your mind, your whole being cries out for some justice and fairness in this world. But if you really do believe these people should be allowed to keep their lives... Well, as I said at the outset, I don't understand you. I'm Dennis Prager. In the external or physical world, we're all aware of standard cause and effect, right? You know, object A acts upon object B with force X. We all get that because it applies to just about everything from electrons to athletes. But now consider events in your internal or mental world. What causes your thoughts? Some of our thoughts have external causes, like when we touch something and suddenly realize it's hot. We don't deliberate whether or not to pull our hand away, right? Our brain has already fired the instruction to do so, involuntarily. In some strange sense, we didn't really pull our hand away at all, because we didn't choose to do it. Our brain did it, before consulting us. A second cause of our thoughts is internal. Say you're thinking about giving a big presentation, and as you do so, you get increasingly nervous, and your blood pressure and your heart rate jump up. Now, nothing external is acting upon you. You're doing all the causing internally, right? Your anxious thoughts are causing your brain to send signals to your heart, and we get that. But now I want you to consider a third category of your thoughts. It's your conscious choices. Something as simple as choosing where to go for lunch. Now, when you introspect, when you think about your thinking, do you believe that you're the active agent in charge of the process or that you're just a passive recipient of the instruction, that you have no choice in the matter? It's all external forces, be they environmental, genetic, chemical, biological, or neurological. In other words, do you think all your thoughts have external causes beyond your control Or do you think that you control some, if not most, of your thoughts? Now, let's stay with our lunch example for a second. Back to the question. I ask you, where do you want to go for lunch today? Now, if all you are is a brain, an exhaustively physical system of neurons and synapses, then there's no you that's going to be making a choice at all. Your thought processes are basically just a complex series of colliding electron dominoes crashing into one another. It's just physical cause and effect, right? Something that can be exhaustively understood in terms of physics and chemistry. 
there's no you that's an agent that's deliberating or choosing or exercising free will. And that's why if you are just a brain, you cannot have free will. You would just be a physical machine, a very complex but programmed computer. But if you're something more than your brain, if you're the thing that has the brain, then when I ask you, where do you want to go for lunch? You're going to start deliberating. Hmm. You're going to be weighing your taste preferences, the commute time, perhaps even counting calories. You'd be weighing various reasons to choose one place over another. You wouldn't be caused to think about any of these things. You would choose to think about these things, and you could stop anytime you wanted to. So what we have here, therefore, are two different types of things, an immaterial mind and the material brain. You are the thing that has the brain. You are not your brain. Now look, even if you were the world's foremost brain expert and you knew what was happening with every electron in someone's brain at a specific particular moment, you still wouldn't have a clue about what's going on inside that person's mind. Surgeons can have access to my brain, but only I have access to my mind. This is what makes you human and not a machine. Psychology, the study of the mind, is not reducible to physics and biology and chemistry. Yet, there are many materialists, people who believe that physical matter is all that exists, that the only reality, including every thought, every feeling, every mind, every will, all of this is totally explained in terms of matter in motion, simply physical phenomena. These materialists believe that we're no more than robots and that free will is an illusion, a myth. Now, why do they believe this? Because they understand that the moment they acknowledge that free will exists, that there really is an immaterial you beyond the physical realm, that there really is a mind, not just a brain, then there has to be something non-physical that accounts for our non-physical minds. Now, when you exercise your free will and you choose to think about all of this, you're going to probably reason just like I did, that there's a great mind that accounts for the origin of your mind. But again, that's your choice. It's evidence of your free will. I'm Frank Pastore for Prager University.